John 17. We're only looking at the first five verses today. We looked at the entire chapter in a sweeping overview last week and saw how that the Lord Jesus was basically praying what he had already said to us. He was just praying his word. And that's a reminder, as I have said before, one of the things I tell people about covenant, when you come to covenant, uh, the difference that you may find is this, is that uh, we, we sing God's word, we pray God's word, we read God's word, we preach God's word, and it's our heart's desire to go out of this building on the Lord's day and, and live God's word. We're a word-centered people, both the living word, Jesus Christ, and the written word, the Holy Scriptures. And so this morning, as we saw last week, how Jesus basically just summarizes in this prayer what he's been teaching the saints up until this point, that's an example of how we should pray as well. Now we're going we're to slow down a bit and take a look at this, this prayer of the Lord's in a little closer detail. Follow along as I read out loud. Again, the inerrant word of God. Jesus spoke these things. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures always. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your spirit. We know that in this place this morning, we are not alone, for your word has promised, your Son indeed has taught us, that the Spirit, who is just like you and just like him, the same essence, the same in power and glory, to be worshipped the same, the Holy Spirit is here, guiding us into truth, comforting us, strengthening us, and so we lean upon him now that we might hear your word and that your word might make us different. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, depending on uh, your Bible, the, 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 the general heading that is not inspired, that may be in something like bold print or in my case in the New American Standard from which I'm reading today, is in bold italics, the high priestly prayer. And uh, uh, that's, that's a label, actually, that was given to this prayer uh, only in, in recent uh, centuries. Uh, 
the last uh, century and a half is the best we can tell historically that that label has appeared on it. Uh, D.A. Carson, who's one of the fine commentators on the book of John these days, simply calls it uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer uh, as an attempt, as he says, to correct uh, the mislabeling of the model prayer that we find in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. Uh, In fact, that's true. In Matthew 6, the Lord teaches his disciples how to pray. He doesn't actually pray. Here, in this case, he prays. So this is the Lord's prayer that's set forth for us as an example. It's, uh, It's the longest of the prayers that we know that our Lord prayed. Uh, when I wrote little, the little article for Ligonier for Table Talk uh, two or three years ago, they asked me to write on prayer. And uh, some of you may recall, uh, I forget now, I wrote it, but I forgot. I, you can go home this afternoon and, and pray this, this prayer that the Lord prayed, and it won't take you very long at all. And uh, part of my point in that little article was, It's not so much how long we pray, but that we pray. The Lord just simply says that we're to pray without ceasing. And he doesn't say how long our prayers should be or how how elegant they should be or eloquent they should be. But this is certainly a beautiful prayer that our Lord has offered. And it's a good example for us. And, uh, and so I hope that you will pay attention to it as an exemplary prayer. But more than that, it's about who our Savior is. That's what the prayer is about. From first to last, it's about who he is and what his desires are. Not only for himself, that's what we're looking at today in verses 1 through 5, his desire for himself and for his Father. And he gives the 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 rationale for what he's praying and asking of the Father. But then as we move on after this in verses 6 and following, we're going to see how that the Lord prays for us. For the immediate disciples at the time, those living at the time, those laboring with him at the time, except for Judas. Judas has already gone. He's not there to hear the prayer. That's one of the sad parts about the prayer. Perhaps the one that needed to hear the prayer the most had forsaken the Lord, had apostatized. But Jesus also moves on in this prayer to pray for those who would come later in succession from those early disciples surrounding him at that time. And that, of course, would include us. And even now we're told in the book of Hebrews, he is interceding for us that we might be saved to the uttermost. That should be of great comfort to us as well. I said earlier, his sovereignty certainly should give us confidence and and comfort that he's in control of all things. But how about his prayers? This prayer, but his intercession for us even now. 
It's remarkable to think about. And that's part of what he's praying for in these first five verses, is that he might be restored to that glory from which he came. And he doesn't say it here, but we know from the rest of the scripture, as I just mentioned, Hebrews 7, 25, that part of the reason that he wanted to be glorified is so that he might resume his place in session with the Father, and part of that session would include his prayer for his people through all times. Isn't it remarkable? You know, every once in a while we'll ask somebody or we may tell someone what we're going through. And the Christian, the, you know, the, the, the knee-jerk Christian reaction is, well, I'll pray for you. And I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but I do too because you're human like I am. Do you ever get down the road somewhere a, a few minutes later or an hour or so later or a day or two later, maybe a week later, or maybe it's not until you see that person the next time and you think, I forgot to pray for them. But there is one who never, ever ceases to pray for us, to intercede for us. And he knows better what we need than we know our hearts. The scripture tells us that, doesn't it? So with that bit of information, introduction, let's look at this. And I want you to think about this. We, we, we looked at this earlier when we, we came across a portion of scripture where clearly, and we've seen this several times in the book of John, but clearly the disciples from time to time just could not grasp what what's being said and done. And they, they were grappling with this. They were, they were trying to understand, but they just they couldn't. It was beyond their ability. Why? Well, because he's the God-man, and that's above our ability. God's incomprehensible. And we struggle to understand God in his ways sometimes. I mean... We're, we're in a place where honesty should just be normal, shouldn't it? In the house of the Lord with the God's people. And uh, we have to confess that our God's ways are above our ways. And we look at people suffering who are doing wonderful and great things for the Lord. And we just think, Lord, why would you, why would you do that? And before you say, well, he's not doing that. Well, yes, he is. Ultimately, he's sovereign. Well, that's just a reminder to us at times like that, that, that his ways as the Apostle Paul says, are way above our ways. His thoughts beyond our thoughts. And instead of that baffling us, it should just bring us great comfort. Well, the disciples have struggled. 
I don't know if you've thought about this before. The synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they speak a lot. Uh, You might say one of the emphases of their writings is on the Lord's teaching that I am going to Jerusalem to die, to suffer and die. I'll be buried and I'll be raised again. John, on the other hand, and we talked about this in the beginning with John. John John is writing very differently than those men. They wrote something of, of, of a portrait of Jesus' life, something of a historical, chronological accounting. But John doesn't do that. He takes the life of Jesus and he puts it together to set forth theological truths. And he begins with the greatest of the theological truths right at the beginning in those first 18 verses, but particularly in the first verse, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And by the way, nothing existed without the word. The word brought all things into existence. That's how he begins and that's how he carries on. And so much of the emphasis through the book of John, and we've seen this up until this point, is I came from the Father, and I'm going to the Father. Not, I'm going to suffer and die and bleed and and be buried and rise again, but simply in, in this term, I came from the Father, I say what the Father tells me to say, I do what the Father told me to do, and I'm going back to the Father. And so now... The disciples, they're getting all this. They're hearing all this. Wait a minute. You're going to die, but you're going to be alive. You're going to a cross, but you're going back to the Father. You came down from the Father. You're God, but you're going to die. That was just... Do you ever just stop and think? How remarkable this story is. How unfathomable... This story is? There is nothing, y'all. Listen, you hear this silliness sometimes. The gospel's very simple. No, it's not. It's very complex. That's what necessitates the Holy Spirit changing our hearts and giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. If it were easy, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. And these poor disciples, they come to this and now they're, now they're listening. Verse eight, chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. He's praying this prayer, and they're hearing this. And Jesus is praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. Thought he was going to Jerusalem to die. And now the one who has sent him, he's asking him to receive him back. 
How does this all fit together? Well, two points in this little passage, now that I've got you to thinking. Two points. The first is that the great high priest, Jesus, prays to the Father for the honor that is due his great work. In other words, he sets forth what he's done. And this is, this is why I'm asking you to glorify me. Father, the hour has come. Notice he began speaking, Father. Very similar to the way he taught the disciples to pray, Our Father. Only here he doesn't say, Our Father. He's praying individually within the Godhead. Just as he would have spoke to the Father from before the foundations of the world, before his incarnation, now he's speaking to him, Father. See, when we pray our Father, we're praying our Father as adopted sons. When the Son, the essential Son, prays, he's different. He's unique from us. And so he doesn't pray our Father, he just prays Father. Then he says, the hour has come. What's the hour? Well, Paul calls it the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, Christ came and suffered and died and bled and, or bled and died and was raised from the grave. It's the hour. The time of his passion, the time of his, of his being offered up, the time when he will offer up. The sacrifice. We think when we read this, and certainly when Jesus prayed this, our Father, or Father rather, the hour has come. He's speaking of a temporal point in history when this is going to take place. But don't ever forget that this hour was decreed, this hour is determined. It didn't just happen. How many times did Jesus have to disappear through their midst, have to exit, or else they would have brought this hour earlier? But it wasn't going to be offered in human time frame. It was going to be offered in divine time frame. It was going to be offered at the perfect moment, the moment that it was decreed. We read about this all through the Bible, but particularly at the end of Hebrews chapter 13, when we're told that the eternal covenant, the blood of the eternal covenant was offered by this, this lamb, the shepherd of the sheep. The eternal blood of the covenant. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. Jesus shed blood in time and space. And the Bible says it's eternal? That's right. Why? Because he decreed it. It had been decreed from before the foundation of the world. Because God the Father had determined his people from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1. That's the hour. And that hour that had been determined had come. Glorify your son. That's the prayer. Glorify. What does it mean to glorify? Well, three words, basically, honor, 
praise, and exalt. Honor, praise, and exalt. That pretty much takes care of glorify. He's praying for that honor that he deserves. He didn't receive much honor on this earth, did he? But he deserved it from the beginning. Praise. He didn't receive, receive much praise while in, incarnate on this earth. But he deserves all praise. And now he's living in this state of humiliation. What are the two states in which our Savior subjected him, or in which he carried out his ministry? One is humiliation. From his, in, from his conception, through his death, his burial, right up until the point of his resurrection, living in a humiliated state, in the context of sin. His exaltation takes place as he ascends through the clouds on that day recorded in Acts chapter 1. And he resides in the exaltated state on the throne with his father, we're told in Revelation chapter 3. That's what he's praying for. But did you notice? The desire is so that the Father may be glorified as well, so that the Father may be exalted, so that the Father may be honored, so that the Father may be praised. That was the desire of the Son. He spoke what the Father sent him. In other words, what what they determined from eternity that he would come and say. He did what they determined from eternity he would do. And it was to glorify the Father. In glorifying the Father, the Son would be glorified. In glorifying the Son, the Father would be glorified. That's his prayer. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. His authority is from all, all time. But notice, we saw this last week, we won't dwell on it. What's the basis? Why does he deserve this glory? Why does he deserve this honor? Why does he deserve this praise? Well, it's because he had authority over all flesh. You say, whoa, wait a minute. Only God has authority over all flesh. Yes. See, this is another one of the reasons why we believe Jesus is God. As I've said over and over, what... And, and as John has told us, one of the reasons this book, the primary reason this book is written, is so that we might believe. Reasons to believe. Here's a reason to believe that Jesus Christ is, is God. Because you've given him authority over all flesh. And the reason he has authority over all flesh, you see how it reads? For this purpose, to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. To all whom you have given him. This takes us back to John chapter 6. We saw that last week. Verse 37 and others in chapter 6. All the Father has given me. I will lose none. It doesn't say anything more indefinite 
but it speaks definitely. All that you've given me. That resonates, doesn't it, with what the angel told Joseph. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's what Jesus says in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. The others, they don't hear it. They don't follow. But my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. The particularity, Jesus says. I've come to do what we determined to do from before the foundation of the world. To give eternal life. Notice here there's no, there's no potential spoken of. He didn't say to make salvation, to make eternal life possible. Are you reading this carefully? He says, here's why I should be glorified. Because I saved my people. I gave them eternal life. He didn't say I made it possible for them if... He said, I gave them eternal life. Please read your Bibles. It'll take you out of the realm of potentiality right into the realm of reality. That God does all his holy will. He saves his people from their sins. And this is eternal life, he says. That they may know you. Notice, it's not they may pray a prayer. It's not they may walk an aisle. It's not they may, it's that they may know you, the only true God. No reductionistic reductionistic Christianity here. To know the only true God. That would involve God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? Well, this, this comports well with what Jesus has said back in chapter 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus came to save his people, to bring them into union with God the Father. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Here we are back to this, you have sent me. That's that's the A thread that runs through the whole book, isn't it? I came from the Father, and I came to save my people. And I came to save them for the Father. And then he's back to, I glorified you on the earth. Having accomplished, not not made possible, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, the argument here Jesus is making to the Father is... I deserve, I deserve glory. You say, but the Father knows that. Yeah, but part of the, part of the purpose of this prayer is not just to be praying to the Father, but are for those poor disciples who are sitting around listening. I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. And these disciples, think about it. How often they were discouraged. And they're right on the precipice of being scattered. 
Jesus has just told him it's going to happen. And yet, now he's, they're hearing him say, I've accomplished everything. That's the basis upon which Jesus is honored and praised and glorified. And that's the basis upon which we're to honor him and praise him and glorify him. Yes, just because he deserves it. But because of what he's done for each of us, for all his people. If indeed... You've tasted and seen that he is good. If indeed the Holy Spirit has opened your heart, as with Lydia, given you an open heart to believe the things that he said, then praise and honor and glory is what we afford to him. Well, that's the first point. The second point's more brief. Jesus then says, Now, Father, Since I've accomplished everything, my desire is to be with you. Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. See, he didn't just earn glory. He deserved glory. He didn't just merit it. It was who he was as the second person of the Holy Trinity, as the Son of God. It's what he had. It's his possession. There's a sense in which it's almost like he's saying here, I miss, I miss glory. I want to be restored to what is mine. I want to be restored to that from which I came. And so in the book of Hebrews, three times, we learn that he's been exalted. He has been raised to the right hand of the Father. That's where he's seated. That's the reason we confess in our faith often that he's coming again. Having been seated at the right hand of the Father. But we know what that seat at the right hand means. It means he's the power. He's the authority. Because as I said earlier, when we get to Revelation, those letters to the seven churches, he tells us that his desire is for his people to be with him just as he is seated with the Father on the throne. There's not three thrones because there's only one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they all reside in session together on that one exalted throne. That's what Jesus desires. That's what he's missing. Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is part of the complication, isn't it? Because it's hard for us to even imagine It's hard for us to close our eyes and think of a time when there was no time. To think of a moment when there was not all of this. When there was just perfect 
unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, encompassing everything. You say, you, you, say, you mean heaven. No, I mean everything. We, we live in the heavens, y'all. This little orb that's thrown out here by God's powerful hand. God is everywhere. God's infinite, eternal, unchangeable. In all of his being, in all of his wisdom, in all that he is. And for us to even, we can't even hardly imagine, again, as I said, we close our eyes and we try to think of a time when there was not all of this. There was only God. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit had this perfect communion, communicating with one another, talking to one another, Son speaking to the Father as he is now, the Father speaking to his Son, well done, all the things that we read of in this book, the Bible, before there was anything here, was in God's great mind. And that's what Jesus wants. And as we read on through, he's going to say that that's what he wants for us also, is to be with him and with the Father and with the Spirit forever. That salvation, not some simple little inane prayer, not some I hope so one day. We go back to verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you. That's that intimacy. That's that union of which Jesus has spoken of so clearly in chapter 15, that without that union, there will be nothing worthwhile. Union with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So that's the Lord's opening portion of his prayer, where he prays for his own glory and honor and praise, and for the Father to be praised. And if he prays this way, how much more should we pray? Isn't that how we've been taught to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Yeah. See, Jesus is just practicing what he preached. Or we might say practicing what he teached. We pray for his name to be hallowed. Jesus says, hallow my name, and I'll hallow your name, Father. And so we pray the same way. We pray for eternal life, that we might know the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And we praise the Lord and honor him for having accomplished the work which he was given to do from before the foundation of the world. Let's thank him for that. Father, we do thank you, not only for teaching us, but for the content of your teaching. May we never be the same. May our desire to glorify the Son, to honor the Son, to praise the Son, 
May the, the, the desire of our heart to, to glorify you, Father, to glorify and honor you and to praise you and your spirit. May that fill our days. Not just a day, but our days. If there's again, Father, any here who perhaps they even profess faith, but they don't possess this kind of faith. They don't, they don't love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. We pray that you might cause that to be real today. In Jesus' name, amen.